ultimately it's harmful to everybody to try to create economies of domination. I think we have a deep hunger to be connected to other people and to be in community and to feel a sense of belonging. The reason that culture and social institutions exist is to try to help us move towards that part of ourselves that is, I guess, what a psychologist would call pro-social. Together, for our mutual benefit. That mutual benefit extends even beyond our human community to the land and plants and animals. And, you know, ultimately we might even think about like the global climate and atmosphere. And if we all work together, then we can all flourish. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Healing grounds. What does that mean? Healing grounds. Grounds, soil. We talk about soil all the time on Farm to Table Talk, but there's a healing aspect to it. And it's one suggested by an author of a book that I've read and really appreciated. I'm going to recommend the book as well, but I'm I'm really happy to uh, welcome Liz Carlisle. Uh, Liz, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here with you, Roger. Liz, it's great to meet the author of a book that I so much appreciated. And the book is called Healing Grounds. And we're going to talk about the book, but we're going to talk about how you came to, to write a book like this, too. And and actually, we should place you a little bit more. You are at University of California at Santa Barbara. And um, explain your department and what the the work that you do at UC Santa Barbara, if you would. Yeah. So I work in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara, and we just recently celebrated our 50th anniversary. And this program was created in 1969 um, in the wake of a disastrous oil spill um, just off the coast of Santa Barbara. And in witnessing this, a group of students and staff and faculty came together and said, we really need to move away from fossil fuels and we need to move away from these, you know, damaging practices to our environment. And the students said, we want to learn about how to build an alternative energy system and a different way of being in the world so that we can, you know, heal these environmental problems. And so they came together out of that conviction and created what at the beginning was a very small program. And all the people teaching in it were basically volunteering because their appointments were in other programs. Um, now, um, we have over a thousand majors. We have um, nearly 20 full-time faculty now and a number of over a dozen professionals from the community who come in and teach in their area of environmental law or environmental planning. And we're all there with a common mission, um, which is to better take care of the environment that we all share. So it's a very inspiring place to work. <laughs> well, I know a little bit about that time. First, I know a little bit about Santa Barbara. It's beautiful. Mm. And you have people like uh, Oprah. They can live anywhere in the world and they choose to go live in Santa Barbara. But all of those folks could look offshore and see these offshore oil rigs from Santa Barbara, which really is a disconnect that you go down this beautiful beach and you've got the, the mountains behind it and so forth and the beautiful climate. And you see these 
these oil wells out there, which perhaps a certain number, you can explain them away, but every once in a while, there's a big accident. So it strikes me, Liz, when you talk about that period that, that this whole program was launched from, there was, there was something not only seriously happening then, but if the whole world had followed the lead that you made there at Santa Barbara back then, pretty much all the horrible stuff that's been happening has happened since 1970. <laughs> you know, if we could go back and you could freeze in time what we were producing, carbon and so forth, and it just stopped in 1970, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. So so I guess what I'm saying, we should have had it. Chad, everybody in the world should have paid attention to what was going on in UC Santa Barbara. We might be better off today. It's a good reminder, and it's a good reminder to me, Roger, about how important it is to listen to young people. And, you know, had we listened to those who were, you know, 19 and 20 and 21 at that time and not said, oh, this is a pipe dream, you know, we can't just shift the whole U.S. economy just because you're concerned about, you know, some marine species. You know, there were grownups who said things like that in those times. And it reminds me not to be one of those adults who discounts the, um, you know, ambitious visions of young people in our program, because oftentimes that's right on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, they needed a little help. And I think they get a little help when reading books like, like your book, too, in that uh, learning the lessons of history. And, and maybe even what you're talking about right now is a little bit of history. You go back a few hundred years. Actually, you could you could claim to go back, I think, 5,000 years in, in, in your book. Um, but just going back 50, like you've just described in the in environmental movement, uh, there were lessons. And perhaps that's what we get from these histories is that there's inflection points that uh, maybe don't be so quick to discount uh, the impulse of the of the young uh, as just saying, well, wait till you grow up or anything like that. But there's there's lessons there picking through those. And and you hope going forward that we're smarter going forward than we've been in our histories. But, um, but anyway, that makes me want to jump into your book, but I don't want to do it too quickly because you came to Santa Barbara from possibly drawn to it uh, in part from from that attention to environment. Is that safe to say that that's what helped you get there? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be part of a community of people who were ready to push the envelope for environmental justice, which is really the way we see the environmental movement and the environmental field um, in our program. And you had at that point, did you have an undergraduate degree from someplace else? Yes, yes. I've had a, a long, winding, fascinating educational path. <laughs> um, and my students are often surprised to learn that my undergraduate degree is in folklore and mythology, which is what I studied at Harvard University um, as an undergraduate. And really fascinated at that time with um the stories of people in rural America. That was kind of my focus when I was an undergraduate. And that the reason I was so interested in that is because of my own grandmother who had lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl. And she had these stories about her life connected to land that I found such wisdom in. And I sort of wanted to somehow recover that land connection for myself. And so the first step was 
uh, just talking to a lot of people who had a rural experience or who were farming, not just about what they were doing on their farm, but why they were doing it and why they found it meaningful and how it, you know, sort of gave shape to their lives. Where was grandma? Where was the, where was the farm that she had that connection for you? Yeah. So she grew up on a farm in Western Nebraska, and that was the farm that she lost in the Dust Bowl. Um, and her family, you know, they lost everything. And um, she actually had to go live with another family for a while and sort of work for them in order to pay to have clothes to go to high school and things like that. But she ended up she ended up in Waterloo, Iowa, um, so not far from agriculture for the rest of her life. Um, and uh, the man she married, um, his family had been involved in agriculture, and some folks worked at John Deere and that sort of thing. So my mother grew up around a lot of agriculture as well, and witnessed, you know, this transition from seeing, you know, pretty diversified family farms to not seeing very many diversified family farms and instead seeing these vast expanses of corn and soy and then these big feedlots. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we, we kind of overlap a little bit on that story, too, because I had some of my family members that decided they go out there into that area of West Nebraska and they decided it is really tough out there. And they had an opportunity to meet some uh, the indigenous community that wasn't happy that they were there. So they had some of that interaction out on the plains and they turned around and came back to the Corn Belt area, Midwest as well. And, and, and farmed after they tried their hand out there and decided, no, this is, this is difficult. I don't think we can do this, but so at some stage, then you have that heritage you should draw on. But Liz, I'm wondering when you were going into to Harvard and you say that you were going to be looking at things like folklore and so forth, did anybody say, Liz, you're a smart girl. Why don't you become an engineer? <laughs> oh, they definitely did. But I've, I've been very stubborn my whole life. That's something else I get from my grandmother. And I was determined that I was going to surround myself with people who were pursuing inquiry based on genuine curiosity and perhaps some desire to serve other people. And I wanted to completely avoid people who were just there to get rich or become prominent, you know? So I didn't want to get caught up in a major where people were just chasing money and folklore and mythology was a great place to be to avoid people who were trying to become rich or socially prominent. Yeah. <laughs> All the people there were interesting. <laughs> Well, I, I really ad admire that. And so you've been able to pursue that journey and you've been able to, in fact, write books, which we're going to talk about now. How did this book, how did it come to be? I mean, did you, you know, all of these things you were running into, did something in particular get your attention or just the general experiences you were engaged with and you felt like you were trying to satisfy a personal curiosity necessarily? perhaps, I feel like in, in a way in, in marketing programs, when people are developing a product, which is different, a book, is that you're necessarily just trying to find what sells. So whether it's a, a book concept or whether it's, you know, a new gadget or a new device or something like it, it's being driven by the marketplace. But in a journey like this, I suspect it's almost curiosity or perhaps something you recognize that you're wanting to share with others. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's part of what brought you to being an author. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, honestly, I don't think I would write a book if I thought that it was already going to be written by someone else or that it already sort of 
had been written by someone else. And so I have had some struggles sometimes pitching the books that I want to write because I want to write things that actually push my readers a little bit, maybe beyond what they thought they wanted to buy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I want my readers to gain more insight. I want my readers to go on a journey with me where we're all growing, you know, rather than just, um, I mean, the way that the algorithms on social media work is to just show you things that you like and that just kind of reaffirm the things you already believe. Um, I want to write in a way that I'm growing and my audience is growing. And at the end of the book, there's some new insight or some new opening to a piece of the world or your life experience that maybe you hadn't seen before. Um, And, you know, where this book in particular comes from, it has been kind of a journey and it is really deep. And it does start with this hunger that I've had since hearing my grandmother's stories, you know, about losing the farm, of wanting to regain that land connection for myself. And also, I feel a sense of responsibility to heal what was broken in those times, you know, when her father's plow um overturned that prairie that then, you know, the dust blew away in the dust bowl. And, you know, over time understanding that, you know, why was my family in Western Nebraska anyway? That was indigenous territory and that needs healing too, you know, that process of settler colonialism. So there's really, really deep seeds there. But then, you know, I've been in regenerative agriculture now for 12 years, um, talking to farmers and doing research on sort of how does agriculture shift from being a climate problem to a climate solution. And the sort of more recent impetus that led directly to this book was as that idea has gone more mainstream with films like Kiss the Ground and Biggest Little Farm and, you know, big food companies like General Mills getting engaged in this conversation of putting the word regenerative agriculture on a box of cereal, um, you know, and also, you know, the UN and the Conference of Parties talking about this as a climate solution. While all this has been happening over the last five years or so, my colleagues in the research community have had very divergent views on this. So some colleagues... And I'm thinking of, you know, like the folks who wrote the four per mill study, a big team, international team based out of Europe, calculated that through regenerative agriculture techniques, that farmers, you know, could offset 20 to 35% of human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. And so these folks were saying, we need to take this very seriously as a significant climate solution. It should be part of our climate policy. And then meanwhile, other researchers were saying, oh, no, 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 no. Like, this is mostly greenwashing by industrial food companies. Um, These calculations are based on faulty assumptions. And really, we should be focused on the energy sector. And this is a distraction. So I really started this book with this question, is regenerative agriculture a climate solution? Is it really? Is it really a significant climate solution? Because I'm hearing different things, and I want to get to the bottom of this. Well, and in that process, when you were trying to answer that question, then you started looking looking back into into history and into waves of of communities of people that were either already here originally, which were sometimes referred to as Native Americans, but the indigenous histories here, 
And while you were struggling with this, it's sort of a paradox in a way, because what's a the new debates about what's regenerative, what's sustainable, what's climate friendly, you go back and discover that this is a really very, very old concepts that the respect for for balance and doing right was reflected with uh, other societies here. And in the process, our friend Ricardo Salvador in the introduction to your book draws uh, an excellent introduction, everything he does. Uh, he, he does so well. And and really, a few pages at the beginning of your book, you don't want to just skip over it. Sometimes you pick up a book and you just skip the introductions that somebody's made, but you don't want to do that with Ricardo. He mentioned several things. So one, he used some terms of talking about looking at these societies at um, Native American, uh, African American, Asian American, and Mesoamerican, and I'm not used to that term, Mesoamerican, is that pretty much all Latin America, more than expanding beyond just uh, Mexico that we often refer to? Yeah, yeah. So I think sort of geographically, we're thinking about sort of all of Central and South America. Okay, okay. Yeah. So with that kind of that kind of setup, um, so you start plunging in and and you tie it back and you look at these societies. You've got huge amount of history to share at each of these stages of uh, where do you even start, Liz? Yeah. Well, I was I was really fortunate to have many wonderful guides along this journey. And so the people that I talked to for the book who are featured and quoted were really, really important guides. Um, and there were others as well. Um, I've listed a bunch of folks in the acknowledgments who I spoke with. And so I really started here now um, in this time period, because one of the first insights I had as I was asking this question of, is regenerative agriculture really a climate solution? I found out pretty quickly that not everybody means the same thing by regenerative agriculture. And so there were forms of it that I saw out there that were kind of more like greenwashing or just kind of people shifting some practices around the margins, maybe adding a little no-till, but not really changing the logic of the way the farming was being practiced. But then on the other hand, it was mostly indigenous communities and communities of color that were pursuing regeneration in this really deep, full, holistic way. And it um, became apparent to me pretty quickly, oh, you know, these communities have been on the front lines of extractive agriculture for hundreds of years. They have been on the losing end of that game since before this extraction was causing climate change. They've experienced the whole journey up to the extraction causing climate change. They've been on the losing side of it. And so not only prior to this did they have their own more regenerative practices, but they've continued to develop those practices as a means of survival and resistance against this extractive agriculture that has not benefited them, but has actually extracted from their own communities. And so I started talking to people in Indigenous communities, um, in Black communities, in Latinx or Mexican-American, Mesoamerican-identified communities and Asian-American communities about 
how they saw regenerative agriculture. And I heard these stories about these deep roots, you know, and, and people sort of tracing their history in regenerative agriculture back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of things their ancestors had practiced either on this continent or in Africa or in Asia or in Mesoamerica. And then I also heard these stories about how even more recently, you know, people in maybe their grandparents' generation or their parents' generation had intentionally cultivated a garden or worked on buffalo restoration or had really worked hard to keep these practices alive and work towards their, you know, ultimate revival, sort of seeing the fate of their communities and the fate of the land as being really intertwined. Your book is filled with inspirations of people today that are kind of bringing forward those experiences that their own families have had for generations, often in other countries as well. How'd that feel? Yeah, it is incredibly humbling and incredibly inspiring. I mean, and anybody who's ever been to a farmer's market in California or in the upper Midwest, I imagine that you've seen um, a, a farm stand there with a Hmong farmer selling this beautiful array of diverse vegetables. And actually, you know, I have a lot of family in the Midwest who talk about how during that period where agriculture industrialized in that region, um, you know, kind of throughout my mom's lifetime, there were fewer of those local vegetable farms and people really missed that. And it was really Hmong farmers who brought back that local produce um, that people had missed in the Midwest. Um, but I think for me, what was really blew me away as somebody who's been involved in the organic movement, um, as I was researching this book, was realizing that the organic movement in the United States and in Europe was really inspired by these longstanding Asian practices of uh, basically nutrient recycling. So composting, soil building, cover crops, um, mulch. Um, two major books that really inspired the organic movement were um, a book by Franklin Hiram King, who was an American soil scientist. He wrote a book called Farmers of 40 Centuries based on a trip that he took to Japan, Korea, and China in 1909. And he was concerned about basically degradation of soils in the United States. Um, and he was really amazed to see these societies that had sustained soils for 4,000 years of agriculture in the same place. And he basically came back and was like, we need to do more of this stuff, <laughs> composting. You know, he's really impressed with living mulch systems. And so that book um, is something you see a lot, even in the organic movement today, but it was circulating quite a bit in the early days. And then also a guy named Sir Albert Howard, who um, he, he was a British guy who was sent to India, which was then a British colony. And he was supposed to, you know, teach them modern agriculture, <laughs> but he got there and uh, decided very quickly that he would be the learner and not the teacher. He was very impressed with the, the um, composting systems in particular of the farmers in India that he interacted with. And he wrote a couple books, one called An Agricultural Testament and one called The Soil and Health, which were really influential in the organic farming movements in the 60s and 70s in the UK and also in the States, and in particular deeply influenced 
uh, the Rodales. Um, so there's kind of like a, a red thread that you can draw basically from these two, um, you know, European and American scientists who were influenced by um, these longstanding Asian practices of nutrient recycling. So anyway, all this is in my mind as I'm seeing um, all this incredible you know, small-scale diversified agriculture that Hmong farmers are developing in California's Central Valley um, that, you know, wow, these practices have a lot of history on the Asian continent. And so much of what I've benefited from in terms of the sustainable agriculture movement has actually been informed by these practices through different avenues. You somehow in the book have like, a, uh, like parallel tracks because we've got this agriculture story and looking at the wisdom of agriculture production. At the same time, you acknowledge these, uh, the prejudices that, they, that they've ran into and the, the difficulty when uh, colonization took place and when, when different waves of people were coming in and to how um, indigenous communities or African-Americans or the Asian-Americans, people of color, if you point out, were encountering all sorts of difficulties. Liz, I don't know quite how you did it, but you did it very, very well because these go through the book. And again, they're kind of parallel tracks. You've got this these broader things that are affecting these societies. And then you've got the, the, um, the lessons of the persistence in, in agriculture that came through. And that wisdom is still there and it's still standing after people have gone through all sorts of troubles. But the wisdom in the agriculture, it's stayed alive. It's been a flame that kept flickering through the centuries. I just sense that, that you somehow managed that balance, which could be in some ways somewhat political, somewhat agricultural, but it's a, a story of, of societies advancing, and it's still got something there for all of us. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I do see it as this kind of epic struggle. Um over centuries, you know, as I try to reckon with why do we have the agriculture that we do and what do we do now in order to shift that agriculture so that it both, you know, provides healthier food for people and also is more consistent with good life on the planet um, and doesn't result in so much oppression of the people who work in it or the people who work around it. Um, I realize that the reasons we have the problems that we do are very, very deep and they come from, you know, 500 years of history. And it's challenging to address them successfully if you don't understand their root causes. Um, and so that was really important for me in the book was to look honestly at how we got to where we are, um, because I think that's really important to working towards where we want to be moving forward. And yet, you know, even I want to be really, really honest about these structural barriers that communities of color face and what colonization really looked like, how violent it really was. Um, and at the same time, I also want to be honest about the tremendous agency of indigenous communities and communities of color in resisting every single one of these developments of colonization and the fact that these practices survived, that's amazing. That's really important to witness and to celebrate that, you know, buffalo were not completely wiped out. African-Americans, you know, they braided seeds into their hair before the brutal middle passage and brought 
cultural foods with them and planted them in dooryard gardens during the periods of slavery. Um, you know, immigrants from Mexico and Central America who faced just horrific conditions throughout a migration, um, you know, horrific treatment in the United States as farm workers and often undocumented. They've brought seeds with them too, and they've planted these incredible gardens and they've shared food with their families and joy in the practice of also kind of keeping polycultural traditions alive. And so I think all of that's really important to see and recognize and celebrate and then figure out how to support you do it very very well and one of the things that i find when I, I look at this that the history and look at what we have to learn from it and look at these these concepts and ideas and perspectives going forward is that at each stage there needs to be people from these various communities choose to get involved in politics you know to to learn that okay well we have to respect you know, the earth, and we have to do these things that work. But you also have to get engaged and try to make laws and run for office and go against your nature. And the thing that I've sensed, Liz, is that in a lot of stages that it's more difficult than people realize is to join the rotary or to join these these community things. And, and that part of integrating communities and to have a welcoming attitude about agriculture issues is tough. And my experience in seeing nonprofit associations go, you know, getting established in agriculture down to the county levels, I've seen many uh, reach out to these various communities. And, and it's hard because it's not been their experience. It's not been their experience that that works very well, even when people are welcoming. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is challenging because I think you're right. I think that we need social institutions in order to have, you know, sort of governance capacity and to build power and to change policy. And I will say for myself as a white person, it has been a journey recognizing that a lot of the social institutions that I'm comfortable with and that I'm used to are really come more from European American cultural values in terms of how they're structured and oftentimes may have a history of either being exclusive or just operating in a way that's more based on one group of people's traditions of so you how you interact or hold a meeting or decide who's speaking next or those kinds of things. And so I think that there's also a responsibility for people like me to see what kinds of community institutions people are building from the grassroots within communities of color that are sort of consistent with their own ways of thinking about how to organize or how to build power and to find ways to resource those groups, even if they're not, you know, maybe the more traditional nonprofits that already have like a funding stream or I think that's, that's important too, because I think, um, you know, I mean, I even look at like the history of the New Deal, which was for many people quite well-meaning. There was a hope for a better life for everyone. Not not everybody involved in the New Deal. There were some very racist people who only saw it as being for white people. But there were a lot of very progressive people at, at that time who hoped that the New Deal would be would provide economic justice and a good life for everybody, including African Americans in the United States. But especially in agriculture, it didn't work out that way because the programs were administered through these very local committees and institutions that 
still operated in ways that were dominated either very explicitly or more implicitly by white people. And so they gave all the loans to the white farmers, basically. And so even as we pay attention to things like federal policy, which is what the New Dealers were doing, we also do have to pay attention to what's happening institutionally within these very local political entities, because a lot of times that is where the rubber meets the road. And you didn't shy away from any of that. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be honest. And I do think that, you know, people have a lot of capacity. And I agree that um, people have the capacity to be motivated by fear, as you're describing, and to then move from that place of fear to scapegoating other people and trying to sort of protect whatever privilege they have by excluding and racializing and demonizing other people. And we certainly see plenty of that happening in the U.S. today. But People, I think almost all people, maybe a handful of sociopaths excluded, also have the capacity to be connected to other people. And I think we have a deep hunger to be connected to other people and to be in community and to feel a sense of belonging. Um, The act of sharing is something that feels really good to most people um, when they have the opportunity to do it and they feel safe doing it. Um, So I do think the reason that culture and social institutions exist is to try to help us move towards that part of ourselves that is, I guess, what a psychologist would call (laughs) pro-social, where we work together for our mutual benefit. (laughs) And I think something I really have learned from people in this book is that that mutual benefit extends even beyond our human community to the land and plants and animals. And, you know, ultimately we might even think about like the global climate and atmosphere. And if we all work together, then we can all flourish. And if we fight each other, um, that's not a good situation for anybody. You know, violence is just ultimately not going to be a good path, even if you're on the winning end of it. Um, And there's I don't know. It should, I think it should be clear, you know, for people who are white, who like, you know, have gained a lot of privilege from the process of colonization. And yet here we are facing climate change. That is absolutely the result of that process of trying to create an economy of domination. So ultimately it's harmful to everybody to try to create economies of domination. And we just have to move towards that capacity that we all have to share in ways that create a better life for everybody. You know, I feel like you just took us on a journey that led to the title Healing Grounds. Nicely done, because you you end up kind of pulling us along to uh, all of this, and I think identifying hope and what are the positive stories there, and you you have a positive, uh, positive name to your book, Healing Grounds. So I, I like that, because in the course of that journey you just described, there's many things that we can be um, uh, sad about, not more than sad, even ashamed at some of the way things happen. Uh, and yet there's lessons in all of this, that it can be better. And it can be better for societies, for communities, for individual farmers, and, and, and for the climate. That was a, 
that sounds to me like, Liz, it's almost the foundation for your next book. I mean, I think you can keep keep this journey going, but congratulations, um, because it's it's a journey that as a as a reader, I think we can all learn from. And um, and you've just done a you've done a remarkable job. I'm I'm jealous of the journey in a way. I don't have the talent to be able to express it the way that you did, but but I, I'm really grateful to have been able to go along with you. Uh, as as you walk through this, and I, I'm sure that others will welcome that opportunity as well. We ought to take a second then and plug the book a little bit more. Um, I've already praised it more than I almost ever do on any any book, but people look for it. All the regular places they can find it is or are there special instructions? Yes. Uh, thank you so much. This is so generous of you, Roger. And yes, all the regular places. Uh, I always love to you know, go, go right into my local independent bookstore, but there's also a place on the internet that's like a collaboration between all those local independent bookstores. It's called bookshop.org, um, but it's out there on all the, all the websites where you might get books. Do you have an audio book yet? Ah, it's in the works. Um, the rights just got licensed to Tantor Media, which is actually who did the audiobooks for both of my previous books. So now um, I auditioned to be the narrator. We'll see if they pick me. Uh, well, you, I think you would be the one. You know, not always can an author pull it off. I, I think you can. And, and in fact, until then, everyone will have to just listen to this podcast and share it with their, <laughs> share it with their friends. But there's a, a whole lot more to, to be able to learn by jumping into the book than just listening to this podcast. But now, let's wrap up, Liz. Let me, let me ask you. Um, what gives you the most hope about the next four or five years? I mean, you've gone back literally thousands of years and all these experiences of communities of color, of the, of the challenges of the environmental impacts that we're facing with carbon and so forth. So looking ahead, what gives you the most, the most hope? The women I spoke to for this book give me tremendous hope because they're already creating the world that we need and that I want to live in. And it's going to take a long time to fully do this globally. I am not in my lifetime going to see um, climate change fully solved or racial justice fully solved. It's a long journey, but in the process Women like the people featured in my book, um, and there are certainly people of other gender identities who are doing this as well, but this book happens to feature women. Um, they are creating those worlds in particular places right now that they can experience with their own communities. So Latrice Tatsy is working towards Buffalo restoration at Blackfeet Nation, and people can experience what that's like to be in that relationship with those animals on the prairie. Um, and, you know, Olivia Watkins is empowering all sorts of Black farmers through Black Farmer Fund, um, partly inspired by the experience she had in her own family's forest land and building an agroforest there. Um, Ida Guzman is doing research with all these incredible immigrant farmers in the Central Valley and documenting how this great biodiversity of plants that they cultivate is also supporting biodiversity underground. And so I'm inspired that even though I won't live to see climate change solved or racial justice solved, 
that in these moments, in these particular places, I can get a glimpse. I can experience for a moment the way the world could be in this reciprocal relationship with land. And that gives me a great deal of hope and it keeps me going, you know, to keep fighting for the policies that we need in order to create that reality for everybody everywhere. Well, I'm happy that you had a glimpse because you're sharing that glimpse with us and you're motivating, uh, I think, a range of, of people that are uh, following your direction already, but some of them haven't realized that there was an area that they could pursue, maybe throw themselves into it. Liz Carlisle, you have a great message to share with us in Healing Grounds, and thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much, Roger. My pleasure. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us.